Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open up, up to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel 28. And uh, as you open there, I'm going to talk to you about a concept inside of systems and organizations, anything that has multiple parts that have to work together. That concept is called the five whys. Uh, the five whys is uh, kind of this uh, idea that was developed by organizational leaders, but it applies to, to multiple things. So I'll kind of, uh, it, what it's meant to do is it's kind of meant to find the cause behind the cause. So um, uh, the example that's often given with the five whys is you have a car that won't start. Uh, and so you ask, well, why won't the car start? And so you go back and, well, it won't start because the battery's dead. Well, why is the battery dead? Well, uh, it, the battery's dead because the alternator is not functional. Well, why is the alternator not functional? Well, the alternator's not functional because the alternator belt is broken. Uh, okay, so that's good. Why is the alternator belt broken? Well, the alternator belt is broken because it was well beyond its useful service life. Okay, well, why was the alternator belt well beyond its useful service life? Well, the vehicle was not maintained according to the su suggested schedule of vehicle service. So by doing that multiple times, we have gotten down to the root cause, which is the owner is like Alex, who did not take his car in at the right time to be serviced in the appropriate way. Um, uh, so let's, let's do this with a different idea. I want to ask the question, why does, why does Autumn, my two, two and a half year old daughter, like chocolate chip cookies so much? Why does she like chocolate chip cookies so much? Well, uh, the first why, she likes to, she kind of likes the taste of the mixture of like a crunch with sweet morsels mixed together, right? Okay, that's, that's a good why. And then after that, uh, her parents let her have some one time. Right? Like that's why she likes that mixture, because her parents actually let her have it at one point. And then uh, why did her parents do that? Well, her parents regularly keep cookies on hand in the house. Okay, it's ex exposing me for right now. Okay, that's great. Uh, her, and then shortage of cookies in the cupboard at all times. Right, so we go back and we find kind of the foundational why behind the why. So, so continue to act, continuing to ask why kind of takes you to the most fundamental explanation. So let's talk about a reality. There are certain experiences of life in this world that cause us to ask why perhaps a little bit more than other experiences. So uh, today we're going to start in this series called The Spiritual War. And what this series is going to do, it's actually going to dig down into one of those more fundamental whys of our world. So like, why are violence and bloodshed common in our world? Why are we constantly hearing about moral and ethical failure of church leaders? Why did Bible-believing North American Christians support hundreds of years of slavery and racism in our country? Why is the Bible frequently used by political leaders to justify sinful things? Why is there such a strong drive in our country right now to remove Christian influence from society? Why does cancer ravage bodies? Why does evil manifest itself in paranormal experiences? And you're like, okay, like that's a little far out there. Let's be honest, these things happen. And it just so happens that the Christian worldview has a really compelling explanation as to why they happen. Why is addiction so 
powerful? Why do people carry out self-harm and suicide? Like many of these questions have their own kind of individual explanations for each of them, perhaps. But if you dig back and kind of look at the why, behind the why, behind the why, they kind of all come back to a few and perhaps even one fundamental cause. And and this one common fundamental cause is what we're going to be looking at in this series. This is that cause. You were born into a violent cosmic conflict. Now, I'm not just telling you that because it's something I made up out of my mind. I'm telling you that because this is the story the Bible tells. Like, this is what the Bible clearly teaches. You were born into a violent cosmic conflict. So this morning, here's what I know. Culturally, we find the concepts that we're going to be talking about in this series kind of weird. Like, we are, we are a little off-put by them, and that has a lot to do with, like, coming through the Enlightenment and believing that only the things that we see and hear and taste and touch and feel, like, all, that's the only thing that's real. But the Bible tells a story of a spiritual realm that is, at the same time, real. And so, so our, our tendency to see these concepts as weird, it can take us in one of two directions. Number one, it could take us to the point where we avoid ever thinking about it or dealing with it. Or the other thing that it could do is actually it could take us to a place where we overemphasize it because we find it so interesting and so intriguing. And uh, there's our, our inclinations with these realities, right? We could go one of those two ways. But then there's what God's word does. And, and God's word, in, in his word, this is what God does. He kind of takes us behind the scenes. He doesn't negate our responsibility for our actions and for the things that happen in this world. But then he says behind that, kind of pulls back the curtain and shows us a spiritual realm that has effects that we can see and perceive in this realm. And that, I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us everything that it does. There, there are a lot of blank spaces left to fill in about the spiritual realm, but, but God shows us just enough to help us realize how helpless we are apart from him. Right, so, uh, so here's my goal this morning. My goal this morning is to kind of help uncover this unseen conflict that exists and kind of put the reality of that in front of us. And then I'm going to help us grasp what it took to get us to this point. So in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11 and 12, this is what it says. It says, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. Verse 12, it says, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. So Tyre uh, is a, a country close to Israel. They were a trade partner with Israel. Uh, and evidence suggests that Israel's relationship with Tyre actually led to more rampant idolatry in that country. So so that Israel was more prone to false worship because of the relationship that they had with Tyre. They were more prone to building up idols and erecting temples to false gods because of the relationship that they had with Tyre. And so it says that God has something to say to the king of Tyre. Tire. Now, just a quick note. If you look back at verse 1 of Ezekiel 28, verse 1 of Ezekiel 28 starts addressing somebody called the prince 
of Tyre. Uh, now, in your translations, that word prince, we typically think of it as like the king and the prince as a father and son relationship, but that's not actually how the word prince is functioning. Prince is a very general word for ruler. So, so what's happening is in verse 1, uh, God kind of addresses the ruler of Tyre, but then in verse uh, 11, he, he addresses this person called the king of Tyre. It's, it's as if he's kind of saying, uh, I'm going to talk to the one in charge first, and then I'm going to talk to the one really in charge after I talk to the one in charge. That's kind of the idea that you get here. And so he's going to express a lamentation. This is an expression of grief or sorrow. And so I just want like be really clear about what God is doing here. He is expressing grief over the one who is really behind things entire. Right? And in this expression of grief, God is going to kind of play this, this five wise game. He's going to help us to see the cause behind the cause behind the cause. He's going to go back and help us understand even kind of the root causes of the idolatry that is entire that's influencing Israel. Right? So Ezekiel 28 verses 12 and 13. This is what he says. He says, You were, king of Tyre, the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Verse 13. You were in Eden the garden of God. So, so this is kind of, God's going to get ready to address, and this is God's introductory statement to his address to this one really behind things entire. And so uh, he says this idea about Eden, and it, basically what he's saying is what happened there in Eden is kind of the same thing that's happening here right now. He's trying to make a comparison between these two things. That, what happened there has something to do with what's happening here. So that's just an introductory statement. I want you to hold on to that thought because we are going to come back to that. But he continues addressing this ruler behind things. He says, Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. The idea that we get behind this, this king that's being addressed is that this is a brilliant, kind of awe-striking being. And so this is what it says uh, after that. It says, on the day that you were created... They were prepared. So God made this being and then prepared all of these ornate ways in which he was going to kind of fit this being and make this being stand out. And then in Ezekiel 28, 14, this is what it says. It says, you were an anointed guardian cherub. So if up to this point you thought that God was talking to a human being, that changes in these words because he makes it very clear that word cherub only applies to spiritual beings. When people have visions of heaven, visions of uh, things, these spiritual beings surrounding God's throne, that's what that word cherub refers to. And, and this, this kind of ruler of Tyre, this king of Tyre is an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you you were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. Okay, so what we're doing is we're trying to kind of track how we got here to kind of where the, the effects of spiritual carnage are playing out in our world. So the very kind of first why that God gives us is this. God 
created remarkable spiritual beings. God created remarkable, they were striking, like they're beautiful. They, uh, the, just kind of the wonder that these things have. Anytime any person in scripture sees one of these beings, their temptation is to fall flat on their face and worship them. That's how striking these things are. And so, so we need to recognize that it states that remarkable nature of that being. But, but at the same time, when he says you were created... It's a subtle reminder that there is one who is still more powerful than you. So yes, there is, there is something really significant about you, but I still have authority over you. Colossians 1.16 speaks of this very same idea. It's talking about Jesus. It says, Jesus, the Son of God, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Okay, so we think generally, yeah, the earth, the things that we see, taste, feel, touch, those things were created visible and invisible. The things that we can't see, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And if you read Paul, you know that he's not just talking about people who are in charge of things. He is talking about uh, spiritual influence. Spiritual charge, spiritual authority, all of those things were created through him and for him. So whatever these beings are that kind of are being talked about, these remarkable spiritual beings, God, Jesus, is still over them from an authority perspective. He still has charge over them. Okay, so we're going to read further about what God has to say to this particular being. Verse 15. You were blameless in your ways. From the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Verse 16. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. Uh, This is what God is saying. He's saying one of these created spiritual beings rejected goodness. This specific kind of ruler that he's addressing rejected goodness. In kind of poetic language, he's saying the currency that you traded in was violence and destruction. Right, you had something really good, but then you made your commodity kind of chaos and unrest and violence, and you rejected goodness. Unrighteousness was found in you. So God is looking at the action of this spiritual being and says, you rebelled. Right, like I had good intentions for you, but you rebelled. Now remember his opening statement. His opening statement was, you were there in Eden, in the garden of God. So what happened in Eden? Genesis 3.1. We get introduced to this spiritual being in a different time and place. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So this serpent and the king of Tyre that is being addressed in Ezekiel 28, they are the same person. And eventually this serpent meets Eve the woman in the garden. and So his goal, if he has unrighteousness found in him, his goal in this moment when we see him in Eden is chaos and disorder. It's violence and destruction. It is death. And so he wants to get her, Eve, to disobey God. And so what does he do? He challenges God's word. He, he says to Eve, did God really say that you shouldn't eat of the fruit of the tree? He, he says to her, so God said, if you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. And, and so he says to her, you will not surely die. And then after that, he says to her, in fact, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Right? Three different times he challenges God's word. He gives her a lie. And what does she do? 
She believes the lie instead of the truth of God's word. And in believing the lie, she eats, she in turn, so, so the, the serpent rebels, and then she in turn rebels. So in Ezekiel, God is saying, kind of the one really in charge of Tyre is the same one who rebelled in the garden and lied. So next step of how we got here, kind of the next why forward, the next cause or the next effect is this. So first thing that happened, God created remarkable spiritual beings. The second thing that happened, one being rebelled and others went with him. One specific being rebelled and others went with him. How do we know that others went with him? Well, in Genesis chapter 6, we see this weird thing where the sons of God came down to earth. And the Bible said the sons of God laid with the daughters of men. And I'm not going to deal with that right now. But what we see from that point is an explosion of chaos and violence in the earth. So much that God says the thought of man's heart was only evil all the time. Right, the kind of things just kind of explode and chaos gets increasing more and more. So we see that happen in Genesis chapter 6 where the sons of God come down to earth. And then also in Revelation chapter 12, this dragon who we're meant to see is the serpent that was in the garden. The dragon sweeps down one third of the stars with his tail. And then right after that we read about this war between Michael and his angels and the dragon and his angels that take place. And so the idea that we're given, the point that we're given is that this serpent's rebellion in its process drew other spiritual beings along with him. And so uh, this rebellion that takes place, it earns the serpent many names in scripture. He's called the Satan. We're used to, we're used to just addressing him as Satan. The Bible actually never calls him the proper name Satan. It always uses the uh, kind of this title idea of the Satan. The definite article is always in front of it. And uh, it's essentially saying the adversary, the enemy, the one who stands against. Uh, the devil is another title that's given to him. And it, the devil simply means the slanderer, the one who uh, makes up lies and accuses people. Uh, he's also called the dragon. That holds on to the serpent imagery that we see in the book of Genesis. And, and all of this, it, it all describes this enemy who rebelled and, and those who went with him, they together have a singular goal. They want to take God's place. That is what they are about. They want to take God's place. So, uh, so God provides the motivation further down. Uh, in Ezekiel twenty-eight seventeen, it says, Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You looked so great. You were so powerful. You were so significant. You were so striking that your heart became proud. And you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So the idea that we get about this one spiritual being, but then generally about the others that went with him, is that they think more highly of themselves than they ought. Right? They are proud. Uh, they, so, so what happens, it says that you corrupted your own wisdom. Um, wisdom in scripture always, like first and foremost, has the application of you are able to recognize God for who he is. You are able to recognize God's rule. You are able to submit to his authority. Like first and foremost, that is the meaning of wisdom. So when he says, you corrupted your wisdom, he's saying you stopped submitting to God. And so then this 
spiritual being and other spiritual beings under his leadership, they together rebelled against God. And so in a way, they want to dethrone God, right? They want to uh, remove God from his rule and take his place. There's a problem with that, though. It's technically impossible, right? Like they, they can't actually take his place. They have no power because he is the creator of everything. They can't touch him. So here's what they do instead. They spread lies, they twist God's word, they create chaos and destruction and death, they draw humans to worship false gods, they entice humans with power and influence, they convince humans that they are victims of God and not his children, and so they rule with lie after lie after lie, and as they rule, creation gets pulled into deeper and deeper darkness. So I want to crystallize what their spiritual rebellion looks like, like how it plays out. This is their spiritual rebellion. They get humans to do two things. One, follow their lies, right? Because in that, they become the ones that get submitted to instead of God. Right, So they can't actually take God's place, but if they can get humans to worship them and follow their lies, that's kind of the next best thing. right? So they get humans to follow their lies and in so doing, reject God's rule. That's how they function. So, so I want you to see kind of the next result, the next thing that comes about in this series of whys. The next effect, Ezekiel 28.60. says, so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. What was beautiful has now become ugly. And I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. So just a note, this is picking up on the curse that was placed on the serpent back in Genesis. It's picking up the same kind of idea. So it's not saying that the serpent or or Satan or whatever you want to title this being is now destroyed but it's speaking prophetically about the destiny that has already been assigned to that being. So uh, we see that destiny being initially assigned back in Genesis 3.15. This is what it says. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. We'll come back to that in a second. This is what it says, though. Uh, Her offspring, he shall bruise your head. Right, So what it's saying is you are going to be a serpent that crawls on the ground and there's going to be one who comes and he's simply going to take a step and he will crush you when he takes that step. This is speaking uh, prophetically about the Messiah who would, to be, who would come. This is Jesus who is going to die on the cross and thereby crush the head of the serpent. So uh, the idea that we get here, how do we get here? The next kind of step, the next why is this. God promised the rebels defeat and punishment. That's kind of the next series, the next why that takes place. The de- defeat and punishment are going to come against them. And how does that ultimately pay out? Well, Jesus comes to earth. And in Mark chapter 1, Mark, the gospel of Mark is amazing for this because you just see it like in, in the front, like, Jesus comes, and he immediately starts having interaction with demons, and these demons are like, leave us alone. Like, we don't want anything to do with you, because they recognize that when he comes on the scene, their power is bound. They are hopeless up against him. 
Right, so Jesus came and he, he binds their power and he makes a mockery of them. He died for uh, sin uh, on the cross and he steals their power. And then he rose from death proving them victorious. And so the humans that they lie to, they see Jesus and some of them acknowledge him as king. Some of them actually see their power defeated and the chains of their captivity is broken when they believe in Jesus, right? So this was the beginning of their defeat and their punishment is actually coming quickly after Jesus' return. Uh, this is uh, in, uh, in the book of Matthew towards the end. Jesus talks about this place called uh, hell or Gehenna or whatever. And he says, depart from me into the eternal fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels. The idea is that God has already made this place where he will ultimately get rid of these spiritual beings that have rebelled. He will deal with them and punish them once and for all. So Genesis 3.15. The next why behind the whys. So at the beginning of verse 15 it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. The idea of enmity is that there will, throughout history, be conflict between you and this race of humans. Right? That there will be uh, kind of this war that takes place. So the next step, the next result of this, how we got here, is that a violent cosmic conflict began. So they were promised defeat and punishment, and from that point, a violent cosmic conflict began. So the defeat of the adversary is not immediate, but there is kind of this in-between time where there is struggle. So if you are kind of like astute and you really have a lot of questions about this stuff, the question that might come up is this. If the conflict is so violent, why wouldn't God just end the conflict? Like if the conflict is so violent, why doesn't he just end it? And I want to tell you why. Because through the ages, he would do something so significant in Jesus that humans from every tribe, in every language, in every nation would reject the lies of the evil one and believe in Jesus. And in accomplishing this, he would take those spiritual beings that rebelled and he would put them to open shame. So God allows this conflict to rage because out of the conflict, Jesus draws people to himself who ultimately end up showing how weak and powerless the adversary actually is. So resulting from that conflict are the things that we mentioned earlier. The violence, the bloodshed, the the challenge of living in this world. So so for what it's worth, we still have a piece to own in this. Adam and Eve, uh, they believed the lie. And though they knew who God was and how powerful he was, they decided to trust the serpent instead of God. And so human beings continue now to choose lies over the truth. And because God in the garden actually placed humans with charge over creation, when we believe the lies 
then creation gets plunged into deeper and deeper chaos. The more lies we believe, the more creation goes into chaos. And Romans 1, chapters 18 through 32, describes this whole thing. I am not going to read the entire thing for you, but I will kind of summarize the most important parts. I'll stick it into as little space as I can. So Romans 1, 18 through 32, and you just need to listen to it. This is what it says. This is what happens when humans believe the lies of the evil one. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to the impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, again, God gave them up to a debased mind. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So the idea that we get is the spiritual war wages and creation plunges into deeper and deeper chaos. So the last piece of how we get here is this. This is the last result. Spiritual and physical carnage result. Right? Because those with responsibility for over creation, human beings are corrupted. Creation is corrupted. So then earthquakes start to happen and storm and and disease and famine and death becomes a part of the regular operation of the world. That is how we got to where we are. Those are kind of the whys behind the why. So remember, this, this is the big why, the big picture that we're going with here. You were born into a violent cosmic conflict. That's the last why behind the why. Okay, so what? I want to like just kind of figure out, okay, how do we deal with this reality? We've put the reality in front of us. We've said that it exists. Now, what do we do about it? Uh, Number one, I have kind of three crucial takeaways, three things that you can kind of just pull away and keep in your mind from this. Uh, Number one, they are created beings with the limitations of created beings, Right, so if you trust in Jesus, your master is the creator of the created beings, which means that he has authority over them. They can't touch you. So uh, they are created beings with the limitations of created beings. And number two, they fight to corrupt every image of God. Right, so human beings were created in God's image. They hate God so much that they do everything that they can to get human beings to go deeper and deeper into corruption. Right, so that's just, those are two significant things to be aware of. The third significant thing to be aware of is if you are a Christian this morning, Christian, they hate you because you undo their work. Right? You undo the thing that they have been working for. You worship the one true God. Like you rejected their life. How much of like a significant mockery is it of the enemy when we sit here together and sing out praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one, because we together are acknowledging and worshiping the one that they're trying to get us away from. 
Right? You carry the presence of God into a broken world. You have the Holy Spirit when you go out. You go out and you actually help people to meet with God. And you know what? You have the tool that sets captives free. You have the gospel that is the power of salvation for everybody who believes. Right? So, so those are just three crucial takeaways. Uh, so what? Number two. Spiritual evil is real. Do you take it seriously? Right, like by and large, we neglect this reality or we don't even really think about it. We call others crazy when they bring it up in conversation. We come up with quick explanations to kind of avoid dealing with the subject. But the Bible wastes no time talking about this concept and and making it really clear that there are dark forces behind the scenes of the events that happen in our world. Right? And everything they do is aimed at disrupting and destroying and corrupting whatever good God made. So, so the devil and his angels, they have been condemned to the punishment and torment of hell. And they are so set on destruction and chaos. They want to draw as many human beings with them as they can in the process into that same punishment. They want to distract human beings with fascinating experiences. They want to mislead human beings with lies. They want to numb human beings with addictions. Because they are dead set on making sure that humans never actually acknowledge their real creator in Jesus. So, so here's what I wish. I, I wish more than anything that Christians would recognize how true this is. Because until we do, we keep playing games on their turf. Right? We get frustrated with political leaders, so we vest our time and attention into politics. We get angry with our neighbors, so we play passive-aggressive games with our neighbors. Right? We encounter hardship, and we use that hardship to justify moments of disobedience to kind of alleviate that on ourselves. We let our challenging experiences uh, kind of send us into a spiral and let them take our eyes off of Jesus. Right? And if we actually believed the truth that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, it would radically change the way that we interact with the world around us. It would make us far more effective in our Christian walk. So uh, that's number two. Number three is this. Following Jesus is not therapy. It's freedom. There's like this interest that's been in our culture for a long time. This interest in going to church because it's about the task of self-improvement. Like, I need to make myself a better person. I need to try to do better, to be better, to live a better life. And you know what? There is something noble about that. And it's true that God does help us to live more in alignment with his desires. But we don't primarily come to Jesus because we need to do a little bit better. We don't primarily come to Jesus because we need to be a little bit better. We come to Christ because his truth provides the only way of escape from the lies that enslave We come to Jesus because he is the way and the truth and the life. We come to Jesus because he is the only one to whom the demons submit and flee from. We come to Jesus because he breaks chains and sets people free from the kingdom of darkness. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, this is what it says. It summarizes all of this. It says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince 
of the power of the air. If you have any confusion about what that means, it's, we've been talking about it all morning. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This was your state, but verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Right? This radically impacts, for what it's worth, not just the way that we think of ourselves, but the way that we think of our lost neighbors. Right? Because the primary problem with them is not that they get on your nerves. The primary problem with them is not that they, don't, that they don't follow your rules. It's not that they don't do like X, Y, or Z thing that offends your sensibilities. The primary problem that they are facing is that they are captive to the prince of the power of the air. And their primary hope is to be set free by trusting in Jesus. Jesus. 